0: Good morning again, and good to be with you. If you're here with us for Easter last week, if uh, if maybe that was your first week out, um, glad glad to have you back. Glad that you're visiting. Um, just a, a little bit of housekeeping before we move on. Um, so in in my home, my wife is pregnant, and we're expecting uh, any. Minute now. And, uh, and so I am taking off the next three weeks from preaching. Uh, I should still be here, and we will still be in Sermon on the Mount, but that's coming up. And, uh, and if you'd like to pray for us, we would love to have you pray for us. And so that's, that's just what's coming up over these next three weeks. Um, back to Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we've been in it for a little while now, and we've said there are two main goals Jesus has in the sermon. Um, he wants to answer the question, what does a follower of Jesus look like? Like a person who follows Jesus, a person who belongs to the kingdom of heaven. Um, Jesus is answering that question. Uh, this is what followers of Jesus care about. This is what they love. This is what we value. This is how we live, and this is what we do, and this is what we don't do. This is what we need to repent of. Uh, not that we can achieve what Jesus is laying out perfectly, but it does give us a goal gives us, it gives us something to grow into and to see more and more increasing in our lives as we look more and more like Jesus. Um, then, more importantly, the second goal Jesus has is revealing himself as the savior we need because we're not able to measure up to the standard that God gives. And in fact, that's, that's the key that Jesus gives us for understanding the part of the sermon that we're in right now, and so the part of the sermon we're in right now, Jesus is laying out some of the different commands that are given in the law of Moses, some of the commands that God imposes on us. And, uh, and, and here's the key that he gives us to understanding that. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus hasn't come because the Old Testament was a mistake and he's cleaning up those mistakes now and he's making everything better and he's making tweaks. Uh, he, he's not doing that. The law that God gives us through Moses is good. The, the command, he says the, uh, all, all the law and the prophets can be summed up in two commands, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the different commands in the law are expressions of these two things, these two commands at the core of it. But Jesus is the one who fulfills the law for us. And that's the good news, because he he, he lives a perfect sinless life. He lives a righteous life. He's achieved a perfect record of obedience to God, loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving his neighbor as himself. And that perfect record that he achieved is given to us as a gift. That's what he does for us. And two weeks ago, uh, right before Easter, we, were, we just started in this section, and Antonio, one of our elders, was teaching through that because I lost my voice, and he had a day's notice to, to write that sermon, so thankful for him in that. Um, and that one covered anger. Actually, it covered Jesus, the command that Jesus is covering is, um, you've heard that it said that you shall not murder. But Jesus takes it further into the thoughts and the intentions of, Of our hearts and he says if you're angry with your brother if you're harboring a murderous anger in your heart even if you don't actually kill someone you've still broken the command to be a follower of jesus is not simply following the rules and checking the box that i did that right checking the box i haven't murdered anyone it's more than that to be a follower of jesus is to examine what's in your own heart and through Repentance and through the grace that we receive from Jesus and the love that we receive from Jesus to grow into a more loving person, to be more forgiving, to be more patient, to be more pure in how we view the people around us, not just seeing them for what we can get from them, but to actually love and value and treasure them and respect. And that's what we're getting into today. And so, um, what we're going to do, we're going to read kind of the whole bit that we're covering in the Sermon on the Mount and then we'll spend the rest of our time going back to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell." Once again, Jesus is bringing up the, uh, the law of Moses, pointing to one of the Ten Commandments where we're given the, the, the moral command, you shall not commit adultery. And again, Jesus takes it deeper and shows us there, there's, uh, there, there's a deeper meaning within this command that actually has to do with the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. That's what the law of God is aimed at. It's not primarily aimed at our actions. It's primarily aimed at our hearts. And so this, this is a problem that, um, that rule-focused Christians, or rule-focused any person, is going to fall into, um, where you get so wrapped up in obeying the letter of the law, but it's still possible for you to be living in a way that is completely counter to the way that God intends you might be missing the point of it, even though you're keeping the rules. Two, uh, two quick points to, uh, to clear up here before we move further into this. Um, first, although the command in the law is explicitly about adultery, which is, you know, when you're married, um, it is implicitly about sexual sin, uh, God has designed sex as a gift for us to enjoy within the, the boundaries of marriage. And so it's not like if you're single, you don't have to listen to what Jesus says here, right? The, this is still binding on each of us. It deals with the thoughts and the desires of our hearts when it's covering uh, sexual sin, which happens when it's taken outside the safe boundaries that God creates for it in the marriage relationship. Second, The example Jesus gives is aimed at men, or the example he gives is men looking with lustful intent at women. Um, But women are also capable of looking at someone with lust. And so it's not like anyone gets off here. Like, uh, it, it would primarily be men, but women are also just as capable of, you know, this sin. And so no one is off the hook. This is for all of us. This is in our hearts, and we're going to get into it. Um, four kind of parts, four categories we're going to use to look at these verses today. Uh, the, the problem of lust, the presence of lust, the source of lust, and the solution for lust. Those four things. First, the problem of lust. And I want to start here because not everyone is going to think that this is, that it's just like a given it's just automatic that having lustful thoughts in your heart is even a problem in the first place. And especially, like, if you're visiting today and you're not a Christian, um, maybe, like, you're new to Jesus, you're new to the Bible, or you've been away for a while and you're kind of reconnecting, um, which is great. Really, really glad that you're here, but you might be looking at this and think, that's a little bit overkill. Uh, for, for Jesus to treat this so seriously, to talk about being thrown into hell for having Thoughts with lustful intent, but you don't actually do anything. Like, isn't it like? Didn't no one get hurt in this whole process? Isn't it? Isn't it kind of harmless? Um, first, I'd like to just spend a little bit on what lustful intent is and what it's not, because lustful intent is not simply thinking someone's attractive, like thinking someone's beautiful and just kind of noticing that. Um, those kinds of thoughts and feelings, uh, when they show up in in our minds and our hearts, it's not always because we made a decision to say, like, oh, I'm going to think that this person or I'm going to feel this way about this person. It's almost like they happen to us. Like, they're occurring to us, and they just kind of show up, and it is almost, you know, outside of our control to have a thought like that. But what you choose to do with those thoughts is what makes the difference. Like, Jesus says there's an intention here, and this lustful intent, and that intention really matters. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says this, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Sometimes you get thoughts in your head that you don't agree with, or that you know is a dangerous thought, right? Like, you get intrusive thoughts. you ever, like, driving, and you just go, like, I could do this right now, and, like, I would die. And, like, ever, like, people would get hurt. It would be a horrible thing. And so, of course, I'm not going to do that. But the thought was still there, you know? What'd you do? You took that thought captive to not make a terrible mistake. If, if you have thoughts of... Um, you have to take these thoughts captive so that you're obedient to Christ. You're obedient to his will, uh, to loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to loving your neighbor as yourself. If you have thoughts about a, attraction to someone, what you do is you take that thought captive so that, uh, so that it doesn't go any further into your imagination or into a scenario. You're not like holding on to it, you're not letting it sit within you and keeping it and, and not letting it go the problem is when you let the thought take you captive to obey it so that you are dwelling on it, you're holding on to it, and you're allowing it really to make changes in you. You're, you're allowing it to make changes about the way that you, you see someone, and it starts even changing the way that you think. See, this is the world's lie when it comes to sin, certainly true when it comes to sexual sin that it's harmless that's not true um, the truth is god created sex of course he created sex he created everything right he created us He created the universe he created all of life it's not like uh, god god made us and then like he had his back turned for a second and then satan snuck in there and was like this will be weird and then makes it uh and then god's like ah oh, what do i do now um it's not in there. Uh, God, God is the creator of sex, and when he creates it, he, he creates the way that we're supposed to, um, the way that we're supposed to engage in it. Um, it's to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage, this committed relationship of, of mutual trust, The metaphor that the bible uses for sex is knowledge Uh, to to know someone biblically is to be joined together in the act of sex because it's such an intimate thing Uh, you're you're so vulnerable you're so exposed or like really no part of you is hidden it's like the deepest knowledge of a person that you could have is is kind of this um, revealed through this really vulnerable act And in marriage, what happens is you're doing that with a person who's made vows to you that they say, I I love you, I'm committed to you, no matter how bad things get, I'm gonna stick with you and we're gonna work through everything. And because you have those assurances and those vows, it makes it safe for you to be that exposed and that vulnerable with that person. You don't have to worry about hiding yourself. It's a really great design that God's given us. And it's necessary because um, sex is a little bit like, like fire, where fire is great when it exists within the boundary of the fireplace. Right? It heats your home, you can use it to cook, it's this great thing. As soon as it escapes the boundary and goes beyond, it suddenly has the potential to be an extremely destructive thing. That's what sex is like outside of the safe boundary that God creates for. It. Instead of knowing, you know, I'm I'm going to be loved in this. I can allow myself to be known. I can be vulnerable. What happens is people end up being used, instead of loved. And and because there's not that uh, that assurance of commitment, there can be feelings of betrayal when it doesn't last. People get hurt. Um, there can be uh, lasting consequences in a, in a person just. Uh, relationally, that you have less trust in the future, Um, you become more jaded, more cynical. Like, it does change people. And it changes the way that you see sex, not, you know, this is primarily something for me to express my love to this person and to bind us together. This is primarily something that, you know, I'm just going to get out of this what I want. I'm going to use it to get what I want. And it doesn't really matter the person that I'm doing it with. It could be anyone. And there's physical consequences as well. We all know what those are, diseases and and unplanned pregnancies. Thing is, even when you are taken captive by lustful thoughts and you're dwelling on them, or you're thinking about scenarios and you don't act on them, that's still changing you. It's still having an effect on you it does shift your thinking about sex, so it's different from what God has created it to be. It's not this thing for me to express love with the person who's committed to me, and I can be really vulnerable with them, and we can know each other on this really deep level. It's mainly something that exists for, for me to get my own pleasure out of it, to get out of it whatever it is that I want. The other person doesn't matter so much. It could be anyone that I, I find suitable, but it doesn't always have to be them. It's going to shift, in some ways how you see people, right? Just just seeing people almost as interchangeable. It doesn't matter um, anything specific about you. I'm not looking at people as, as individuals to be uh, respected and treasured and loved, someone who could be used for, for what I want to use them for. And when the sin gets exposed, because that's what happens with sin, it gets exposed, and, and if you are married or you are in, in a relationship and it gets exposed, it's going to hurt the person that you're with. It's going to hurt your spouse. They're going to they're gonna learn about it. They're going to they're gonna feel, um, feel insecure. They're going to feel like they're not enough. They're going to feel like there's something wrong with them. And then if, if, you know, there's there's a person that you are sort of lusting after um, and they become aware of it, that could become a really uncomfortable thing that could be damaging to your relationship. If it's in work, it could be uh, really, you know, kind of making a mess of the place that you work. Maybe the worst part of this sin, and this is, I mean, the case with, with almost every sin, or maybe every sin, is the attitude we get where as soon as God says something that we don't like, we don't care about what he says. Like, that's how weak our faith is sometimes, where it, like, faith only matters to me when uh, God is talking about things that I already agree with or when he's saying things that that i can i can get on board with but as soon as he says something that i don't like and he says you know here's here's a change that you have to make here's a sacrifice here's something you have to give up or not participate in and as soon as he says that i feel like i have the freedom and the ability to just ignore what he says and go ahead and do it anyways if if you think that you can hang on to your lustful thoughts in private internally keep it to yourself and it's not going to affect or make changes anywhere else that's your delusion it's certainly going to damage your spiritual health it's certainly going to damage the relationship and the walk that you're on with jesus it's going to change the way that you you view sex it's going to change the way that you see the people around you that's the the problem of lust let's move on next to the presence of lust, because honestly, it feels like the temptation is. The culture feels pretty saturated, with lust. Right, the apostle Peter helps to um, explain the difference between the values of the world, and when the Bible talks about the world in general, like that, it's it's usually talking about um, people apart from the the knowledge of God or the desire to live in a way that's pleasing to God right? Just just not really caring much for what God says. And so the, the values of people who don't really care what God says compared to the values of people who follow Jesus, they're just so opposite. They're so different. And so Peter says this, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Now, I know that sounds like a bit of an exaggerated example, because not everyone who's not a Christian is going to orgies, I think. I hope. Um, and I'm not suggesting that, oh, this is something that all people who are not this is something they all do. Um, however, the things that Jesus would put in categories of, you know, this, this is good and this is evil are so opposite to what the world would put into those same categories of good and evil. Jesus says sex is meant for marriage, and the world would say unrestricted sex is completely fine as long as everyone's consenting. They're on total opposite sides. Our cultural attitude Toward sex makes having lustful thoughts completely normalized. And in fact, if you think having lustful thoughts is is bad, then then you have a problem, right? There's there's something repressed in you, and and what you need to do is learn to embrace those things and embrace those feelings. And, um, you know, like the real damaging thing is that you think this is a problem. Um, and it's so sad because this has become a problem where, where, where women, when it comes to their, their boyfriends or their husbands, um, they, they don't like that their husbands or boyfriends are looking at pornography because you know, it makes them feel insecure, it makes them feel like they're not enough and it's just painful for them. But then those women are told there's actually nothing wrong with that and you need to try to be less controlling. You need to learn to be accepting that this is the way that men are and this is the way that things are and this is normal and this is fine and this is good. Pornography is, is a really big issue. Um, it's probably the thing that most of us think about when we, when we think about the, the problem of lust or the sin of lust. Uh, and, and we can't ignore how available it is, how present it is, how big it is. The, the average age of exposure to pornography is 12 years old. For some, it's much younger. And, and for some, it, it can be much later, but at some point, it just happens. It's just, it's there, right? Not even being sought out, just accidentally being exposed to it. I think it was around 12 the, the first time that I saw it. And the impact that it has on our brains, and especially in adolescence and developing brains, um, it does create, like, actual uh, addictions. It's, it's so available. And, look, if you have kids or if you're going to have kids, you just this needs to be something that you accept as part of our reality so that you take the step of having conversations with your kids about sex and, and about... You know pornography and just kind of what the world is like because if you don't do it they're going to find those things out anyways they're just not going to learn it from you and so they might learn a very um slanted perspective on it that is not at all the, the way that you want them to be equipped or prepared to uh to to deal with it and it's not just explicit pornography i mean that's a huge problem but I mean, lust is everywhere. If you look at any form of media, any you know, movies and TV shows and advertisements uh, with gratuitous sexuality that's just part of it. It's are just baked into it. Even books. And I feel like books get a pass sometimes because they're words and not pictures, and they shouldn't get a pass. Um, I like to read. I'm, I'm, I'm a reader, and uh, I once had a book that was recommended to me um, by, uh, you know, a friend of my mom, and, uh, and my mom also had read it, and she said, yeah, it's a good book, and so it was, like, some mystery, uh, and I read it, and it was, it was really funny, and it was really clever, it was a pretty good book, um, but as I'm reading it, I get to, like, this really graphic scene, and I just can't stop thinking, my mom has read this, <laughs> like, I don't like that, uh, and, like, I think she probably, like, forgot it was in there, or, like, maybe she won't. I don't remember anything about it. But, like, you do forget. I, uh, I was a part of a community group years, a few years ago, and uh, there's a great older couple in our group. Um, they, they love Jesus. They're really great. And the, the husband, he's, like, 80 years old, or, like, close to 80. And I don't remember how this came up, but, but I know he, he loves movies. He loves comedies. And for some reason in the group... There was a reference made to the movie along came Polly*, uh ben stiller and jennifer aniston and like whatever the reference was and i just said like i remember it being a really funny movie he like comedies you you should watch it so i I recommended it and uh and i think it was before the next group my wife and i we watched it because we hadn't seen it in forever and remembered it being funny and like the first scene in the movie is a naked french guy on this like nude beach and it doesn't get much better from there for the rest of the movie. And you just forget those things. And, uh, and so I wasn't sure how group was going to go the next week. And, uh, and he showed up, and he thought it was great. <laughs> he, he thought it was hilarious. His wife didn't like it. Um, <laughs> but all these examples, to reiterate the point, our culture pretty actively promotes lust and treats it like a normal thing, a harmless thing, it's fine. Even even like fashion. So this one is like really uh, is really sad to me. The the majority of clothes that are designed and made for just standard are so much more revealing than men's clothes, and they're just made that way. And it starts young. Like I have a two-year-old and like the, the toddler clothes for, for boys and girls, like you see such a difference in like what, how they're designed, and you go, they're toddlers, they don't need like like hiked up short little shorts and like the boys get, like it's, it's weird. And modesty is like its own issue, this isn't a sermon on modesty, but you know, it is true for some women that there is like an active effort to dress a certain way because they want to uh, they want to get a certain kind of attention. Uh, they want to get a certain kind of reaction, and they are inviting, um, you know, a, really a, a lustful look at them. And, and, you know, that's their own issue that this is the way that, that they feel valued, and, and there's things that need to be worked through in that. Um, but we need to recognize like, that's not all women. And, you know, not, not all women are making a conscious attempt to invite lustful thoughts about themselves when they're just wearing the standard clothes that are designed for all women. And let's be honest, lust would still exist if we didn't have the internet. And we didn't have pornography and we didn't have explicit scenes in, uh, or gratuitous scenes in movies and TV shows and books and uh, if fashion was different, like it would still exist. Jesus is bringing up this problem in a culture much, much different than ours. There is a lot within our culture and our experience that encourages the problem, says that it's not a problem, and makes it worse. But Jesus is very clear when he points to the source. And so here's, here's our third uh, point, the source of lust. What is it that Jesus points to? The, the thing that um, is causing you to sin. He said, if this causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, if, if your hand causes you to sin, I mean, when Jesus is pointing to the source of the problem, he points to you. It's not an external problem that you can blame on the world. Well, if the world wasn't this way, I wouldn't be dealing with this, or blame on another person. If if they weren't doing this, I wouldn't be feeling this way. Um, it's an internal problem. Therefore, if you, if like your approach to this is uh, is, is you're going to be sort of the you know the modesty police to try and make changes to people and things around you so that the environment is in such a way that you never feel tempted, you're going about it the wrong way, and you're fundamentally misunderstanding what Jesus says about lust. You may have seen like some of these awkward encounters that are sometimes captured on video and like posted the internet, where like a stranger comes up to a group of uh, of women in like some public space, like like the beach, and says, you know, hey, um, you are uh, just dressed way too revealing, and it's really making me struggle with lust, and I really think you should cover up. I don't know for sure how you get that much audacity to like confront a stranger like that Um, and it never ends well they're never like oh my gosh really sorry Uh, and it it also like comes across as as pretty creepy Um, the biggest problem I see with this approach to like thinking about the problem that this is mainly an external thing, and if I can control the external, then I won't have a problem internally. The the biggest problem I see with that is that it shifts responsibility away from the person Jesus says it belongs to. Jesus says the responsibility belongs to the person who's looking with lustful intent. And honestly it feels pretty dehumanizing towards all men. There's some of the things people say about men, that like, oh, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're visual creatures, and they're just men, they just can't help it. That feels so dehumanizing to me, because like, that's the kind of thing you say about a dog, when like, the dog pukes on the carpet, and like, yeah, you're mad that the dog puked on the carpet, but then you go, well, it's the dog. It's just doing what dogs do. You know, a dog couldn't help it. You can help it. You can. And no one else can help it for you. The source of the problem is in you. James tells us about the, uh, the nature of temptation, just how temptation works. In, uh, in, in the letter that he writes, James chapter 1, he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. He's using like a fishing metaphor. You go fishing, you throw the lure in, the fish sees the shiny lure and and they want it and they don't know that there's hooks hidden in it to drag them away to their death. We get lured and we get enticed by our own desire. That's at the center of every temptation, every sin, ultimately, there's something that you want. There's something that your heart desires, something that your heart is valuing, and what happens with sin is you end up valuing it more than you value what God says. You, you value the thing that you want more than, than what you know God says about it, or the, the desire to be obedient to him, and in right re- relationship with him, and this thing overpowers it, and and you just want it. There's something that you want, something that you want to make you happy, to to fill you up. People who struggle with lust need to first understand this is an internal problem. It's not something you can blame on the world. It's not something you can blame on other people. This is in you. Along with that, People who've been hurt by another person's lust also need to realize this is an internal problem. This is their own sin. This is their own internal problem. And it's not that you're not enough for them. And if you were better, if you were more, they never would have sinned. And so you're trying to be enough to fix it. That's not what it is. You can't fix another person's sin by being enough for them. That's not the way that sin works. You can help them, you can be a support to them, but you can't fix their sin. That's a burden that's far too heavy for anyone to bear. That's the burden that Jesus takes. Only (laughs) Jesus is able to bear the burden of fixing a person's sin. It's not on you and, and And as much as it is painful and can make you feel insecure, uh, you at least need to realize, like, okay, I'm, I'm not, it's not because I'm not enough. It's not because I'm not good enough. This, this is a sin. This is something that's between this person and God. And that brings us to our last point, the solution for lust first step in uh, in in putting the sin of lust to death if this is something that you struggle with something that you carry around and many people do first step in solving the problem of lust is to look at jesus warning and to take the sin seriously like the warning that if you just leave this if you think it's fine if you don't do anything you'd be thrown into hell There is wrath for sin. There is judgment for sin. It's not, it's not nothing. We have this habit. We do this thing where we think sin is a much smaller deal than Jesus does. than Jesus tells us it is. And we know how big of a deal sin is because Jesus had to die on the cross to forgive it. If it's something that required Jesus had to go to the cross in order to forgive you, it's not a light matter. It's not a small thing. You have to recognize sin really is a problem. Sin really is an issue. And it's not some harmless thing that you can ignore and continue on and, 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 and everything will be fine. As part of that, you again need to recognize the true source of your sin, that it's in you. It's, it's your own temptation and therefore it is your own responsibility to do something about it. It's not the responsibility of the people around you to, to fix this for you or to make changes so that uh, you don't struggle with this anymore. You, you can't just blame the world. You can't just say, I can't help it. Then, you do what Jesus tells us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. If your eye causes you to sin, rip it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Th- these are metaphors for repentance. Um, repentance is turning yourself away from sin. Just, just, fully rejecting it, fully rejecting your sin, which means there has to be real actual changes in your life. There have to be real things that are different, real steps that you take. Repentance always shows up in real concrete ways in your life. Um, If if you're too tempted at a certain place, like you're at the, the beach or the gym and that place is too tempting for you, you can leave. You can walk away, you can look at your feet, you can do something, you make some change. Um, If if having your phone with you in your bedroom at night leads to having lustful thoughts because of what you use your phone for in your bedroom at night when you're all alone, don't bring it in your room. Charge it in the kitchen. Get, Get accountability software, get accountability partners, confess your sin, pray, everything that you can do, every step that you can take to cut the sin out of your life. When I was a new Christian. I was living in my mom's house. Um, I, uh, I took the door off my room. i just like, I don't want, like, I, the, I looked at pornography probably every day from the age of 12 to 21. And, uh, and it was really difficult to try and make headway into that. And so that was one of the steps I took. I took the door off the off the frame. That's where it needs to start. It needs to start with fully rejecting the sin, making changes, taking steps. But if this is something that you really struggle with and it really has kind of its hooks in you and you really struggle to make headway with it uh, just trying to turn away from the sin is not going to be enough like remember what temptation is we're lured and we're enticed by our own desires there's some kind of like happiness or peace or reward in the thing that we're chasing after and if all you do is you stop filling yourself up with that and that's all you do it's just gonna leave you feeling empty The good news is repentance is more than just turning away from your sin. It's also turning yourself towards God, turning yourself towards Jesus so that you could be so satisfied in Him and the love that He has for you and the life that He calls you to that the temptation doesn't really move you because you're just so you have so much happiness you have so much joy in in knowing how jesus loves you in the life that he's given you and the things that he's called you to and and you're active in those things and you're you're walking with god and you're uh you know you're you're walking with him every day you're reading his word you're praying and you're seeing how he shows up in your life and and it just gives you so much joy that what you're getting from jesus is better than what the temptation is even offering you it just looks like a cheap knockoff alternative But you really need to see Jesus. You need to see how good he is. You need to see what he's done for you. Again, that Jesus is the one who's fulfilled the law for you. What Jesus is doing in the sermon here by applying the law of God down to the level of the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts, he's showing us it. None of us measure up. None of us are as good or loving as God created us to be. None of us are as good and loving as we even want to be. And because of our sin, there is sin in us. And because of our sin, we do deserve judgment for our sin. But what Jesus has done in the good news, he's gone to the cross in our place to pay the debt that we owe so we could be forgiven, we could be made new. Jesus loves you. In our sin, in our lust, yes, but in all of our sin, in all of our selfishness, we look at people in in terms of, you know, what we can get from them, what they can do for us, how, you know, we get to benefit from this person and that's how we value people. Jesus doesn't look at you like that. He doesn't look at you to see, what benefit can I get from you? What can you do for me? The the way that Jesus values you is based on what he paid in order to get you. That on the cross, he poured out his own blood so that he could forgive you, so that he could have you. Jesus really loves you. That's the love that you need to be filled up with. The the love, the grace, the mercy of Jesus that you receive in the gospel. And with that, every good thing that he gives you, every great thing in your life, if you're married, your spouse, if you have kids, your kids, the, the job that he gives you, the church that he gives you, the friends that he gives you, all the good things that, you have in your life. The way that you put your sin to death is by making yourself so happy in who Jesus is and what he's done for you and the life that he's created for you. You're so filled up with all of that. There's no room for the temptation. I mean, that's how you're going to rip out the roots in your heart. That's what you need to be doing. That's what you need to be striving toward. Dwelling on lustful thoughts can damage the way that we think about sex and and how we see people and our relationship with God, but but there is healing in Jesus. Jesus changes us. He changes our hearts. There's no sin Jesus can't forgive. There's no um, there's no stubbornness in us He can't overcome. In Romans 12, Paul writes this. He says, "Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." This is not inevitable. You don't have to be conformed to the pattern of the world. You don't have to see everything and think of everything the way that the the um, the majority cultural attitude towards something is. You can be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You can be changed. Like the more time that you spend with God that you spend in his word and you spend in prayer and you spend filling yourself up with knowledge of this is how much he loves me. This is how much he's given me. Look at all the good things he's given me in my life. Look at all the good things he's called me to, the purpose that I have. Look at all those things. He changes you, he transforms you. There's so much more peace and joy and purpose in the life that God has for you. And I hope that's what we can do from the Sermon on the Mount from what Jesus shows us here, not only taking our sins seriously, not only recognizing the source, not only taking those steps of repentance to make real changes in your life, but at the same time to turn towards Jesus, to be filled up with everything that he has for you. Let me pray for us.